Welcome to Front and Center, from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields, where awakening people from all sides come together to help write our new story and build upon America's sacred purpose, unity and diversity, while expressing their individual freedom in the context of sacred community. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Maxenny and Steve Behrman. center from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. Hello, I'm Michael Maxendi. Today, my partner Steve and I are really looking forward to an enlightening conversation, a conversation for possibilities. I first was introduced to our guest's work back in 2011 and have been following his work closely ever since. But I will ask my partner, Steve Berriman, who has known him for many years to make a, a more formal but personal introduction to our guest, Steve. Thank you, Michael, and welcome, Foster. You know, uh, I realize I've known you perhaps maybe 20 years, and I remember um, being at some event with you when you and Kimberly were first beginning the Thrive Venture. It wasn't even called that at the time. And, uh, and I remember also Thanksgiving, eve of Thanksgiving uh, 2011, uh, right after the a uh, movie had come out. We had dinner at a restaurant in Santa Cruz, and everybody was really excited about this. So uh, I'd like for you, just for our, our audience, to fill us in on, on your background a little bit, and then how the Thrive Movement came about, and uh, and the changes that are being made right now that you announced in your recent uh, uh, fireside chat. Well, those are three big questions. Well, I'll go about an hour and a half, and then you can jump in. <laughs> okay, okay. We... <laughs> no, I, that's fine. No, I'm just kidding. I have a mute. Every time I, I see you, I, I just start chuckling, so you'll have to forgive me here. No, um, my background, I, I grew up uh, in the Midwest, in Ohio. Uh, I was privileged to be born into a really wonderful family, which I learned later on wasn't all that common. Uh, and they really supported me in basically whatever I wanted to do that, that made some common sense, even if they didn't fully understand it. Um, and it also happened to be the, the Gamble family related to Procter & Gamble. So when I grew into adulthood, I learned, thankfully, that I had inherited some money, not a ton of money. People think I'm a billionaire. You know, this is the sixth generation. It's usually gone by the fifth. <laughs> so, uh, but I inherited enough that I could choose what I wanted to do with my life. People weren't going to take me seriously if I complained about my job. So I, I really needed to ask myself at a pretty early age, well, you know, what am I passionate about and what's the best use of me given what's going on in the world? And that really shaped a lot because I thought when I was in college that you know, people were waking up to the environmental issues and that would be handled pretty soon. And, you know, the economy would be sound. And <laughs> Little did I know. Uh, and I, I got passionate about filmmaking in college. I actually started the filmmaking department when I was at Princeton, persuaded them to give me a budget and a room and some cameras and 
Yeah, and that was the beginning of the filmmaking department, so I could start making films. And what I really wanted to do was make a film about what's in the way of humanity thriving and what can we do about it. And when I graduated, I told people that's what I was going to do. And I thought, you know, conservatively, it might take five years because I didn't want to just come out with a bunch of problems. I wanted to come out with the solutions commensurate to the problem. Well, 42 years later, I felt actually ready to make the film. And fortunately, that's when I met my dear wife, Kimberly, who is a master filmmaker, writer, editor, producer herself. So the timing was good. Maybe that's what I was actually waiting for. So, um, so we made a film. We spent eight years uh, making the film called Thrive, What on Earth Will It Take? And we honestly didn't know. We would kid ourselves like, okay, we'll put this out and, you know, maybe nobody will respond and we'll put it, you know, in a time capsule and we'll send it out to another planet or we'll bury it for a future generation. And it went completely viral. The, the, uh, on, based on the trailer, the, the uh, premiere sold out in an hour at 6 a.m. Um, and it just has been going viral ever since. Now it's got, you know, over 95 million views and still spreading. So it was tremendously exciting for us to realize that, first of all, maybe we weren't crazy. And secondly, it was really encouraging to realize what a what a great percentage of humanity is not only ready for challenging truths, they're hungry for them so that they can get informed to create solutions that will actually work. So my path since 2023, when Kimberly and I embarked on this, uh, has been creating Thrive One, and then I've had several internet shows. I've been fortunate to to have uh, Steve on the show as a guest, and and Michael as a member. Actually, just on my last show, um, and uh, and then we decided to commit to Thrive Two because so much had changed in a decade since Thrive One that we spent another two years. We we got a little more efficient over over the years, and we made a second film called Thrive Two. This is what it takes because so much had shaped up in terms of what, what it actually was taking to create solutions in every single sector. And the evidence was already here worldwide. So we made Thrive 2, put that out. We're censored like crazy, but now it's really getting out. And I've continued to have uh, an internet show, especially to, uh, to talk about what I think is most important and what is missing even in the realm of solutions. So I'll leave it at that. You're muted, Steve. You were muted, Steve. That leaves okay. me to ask. I've never heard you soft-spoken. <laughs> well, that was a perfect way for him to, to let me ask this next question. Because what is the next steps? Uh, that's what I've been focused on. And, and you touched on many things there that I'd like to get back to. Uh, but what is the before we get into what is the next steps? I'd like I would like to go back to your focus on what was the best use of your life. Uh, to answer the question is uh, what is the what is in the way of humanity thriving? Uh, I I so appreciate what you what you said there, and that you looked at your life and didn't want to just you know live a comfortable, easy, fun life, that there was more to our existence than uh, just, you know, self-indulgence, if you will. Yeah. Uh, 
and, and that is uh, obviously what drew you uh, to Bobby Kennedy, uh, who has a similar passion. And I think there's a lot, Steve, myself, and I'm fortunate to know, and I've I recently have gotten to know Andrew Yang, and um, Andrew actually will fit in that. I actually have had the opportunity to uh, have some uh, private time with him and then, and then be assisting him on a couple of events, and I've really grown fond of him, and he fits right into this. But, uh, but to the next steps, that's the, the thing that I've been focused on is what is the adjacent possible next step? And when you were in your fireside talk, you said that you would now decide to ch shift gears and to uh, into a new direction. Um, so what I'd like you to do for our audience's sake is to go into and explain to them the basis of the whole concept, or not concept, the understanding that Thrive was bringing forward that then you worked on for 10 years at, at beyond after the release of the movie that now you then have changed directions from it. Yeah, well, you, you hit it on the head with the, the phrase, the best use of me, because uh, doing the Thrive Movement was the best use of me for a long time, because when I went out into the world looking for what's in the way of humanity thriving, I was completely shocked <laughs> by the results uh, of my quest because I thought it would be just, you know, kind of a lack of productivity or creativity or inability to collaborate and sort of thing. I would did not go out looking for a conspiracy to control the world. <laughs> but unfortunately, that's what I found. Um, and I, I it really depressed me for a long time. And I kept thinking that, um, you know, I, I'm hoping I'm wrong. But the deeper I looked, and this is like, you know, 30 years later, um, I have absolutely no doubt that that's the main thing in the way of our thriving, that we've created a political structure where psychopaths thrive, where people who have no compunction about lying, cheating, stealing, assassination, uh, fake wars, all of this stuff, where they will naturally rise to the top because they'll say anything to get ahead. And given that the political system, for the most part, is dominated by the private central banking system, which is corrupt to its core. It, it literally is, they, they got, a few people got the right to counterfeit money. Well, you know, if we're in a, in a uh, monopoly game with a few people who get to create the money, how long are we gonna be in the game? Well, okay, th here we are. They, they, they got that power in 1913 in the US and here we are a little over a century later, we're almost, com or we're, we're completely broke, the most in debt, organization in the history of the world is the U.S. government, uh, and we're on the brink of a global police state. So, huh, something <laughs> isn't quite tracking here. And so Kimberly and I set out to wake up as many people as we could to the plot that is afoot, because you can't really be effective in dealing with it until you realize how diabolical it is. Um, and so we wanted to expose it and at the same time uh, share what we saw as viable alternatives in every single sector. So that's what Thrive was about. And when we started, there were my guess is there were probably uh, a dozen people in the world who were doing what we were doing. You know, there's the David Ikes and Alex Joneses and James Corbett's and people who were out there been doing serious research and each in their own style, uh, you know, sharing it with the world to try to help people wake up in time. 
So now here we are 12 years later, and now there are literally millions of effective researchers and truth-seeking, truth-telling podcasters who are doing a great job. Of course, there's a lot of frauds and uninformed people, but there's plenty of really important, good information out there. So for us, it didn't seem like the best use of us just to continue being one of those. We were proud to have helped catalyze that. But now for myself, I needed to say, okay, um, I just turned 75 years old. I, I hope I have a lot of healthy time left, but, you know, I wake up each morning, do a little organ check and go, phew, okay, we got another one. Here we go. I can relate <laughs> and, to that. <laughs> and so I, I realized that the most important thing that I had been sharing with the world that the least amount of people understood was the need for a universal morality for humanity. Uh, and then the, the natural uh, outcomes, the natural downstream flow from the non-aggression principle, which as far as I, I, I've looked, been looking for 30 years, it's the only even serious candidate for a universal morality. And thank goodness, everyone I've ever met all over the world already agrees to it. And, you know, it's tough to get your family to agree on where to go for dinner. So, so the, the fact that all of humanity doesn't want to be violated against their will, the non-aggression principle simply says no one is allowed to initiate force or fraud against anyone else except in true self-defense. And it's like, okay, well, I've never met anyone who wanted to be violated against their will. There's, there's some people out there who want to be violated, you know, but they're choosing it. That, that's a whole different topic. But at least it's not involuntary, and that's the key word. So everything we've done, the punchline to Thrive 1 was the non-aggression principle. The punchline to Thrive 2 and all of the TV programs I've done, the, all the hundreds of blogs that I've written, the punchline is always uh, revealing that humanity has been without a universal morality. In the beginning, it was whoever had the biggest club and the biggest gang. And then, then you know, we took a, a major positive step with religions. They started to, eat, to have some ethics. Um, and religion has been a great kind of uh, carrier for different systems of ethics. Of course, they didn't all agree with each other. And then they fought wars for centuries where hundreds of millions of people died over, you know, who, who actually had God's true word. So it, it had benefit, but it wasn't complete. Then along came the notion of the nation state and really uh, exciting concepts like separation of church and state and the rule of law and innocent till proven guilty. You know, some profound stuff we take for granted now, but it wasn't always that way. Uh, however, you know, there's all these different states and the, there's human beings making up these rules. They're not going on natural law for the most part. So then they disagree with each other. Now, just in the 20th century alone, over 250 million people were murdered within their own state boundaries. Uh, so that hasn't worked out really well either. It's a great start. And, you know, the America as the shining light on the hill and this, you know, republic and the, this notion of people actually being able to vote was a huge positive step coming down in history from the pharaohs to the kings to the priests to the dictators and finally now we've got presidents and premier, prime, premiers and prime ministers and so forth so a lot of people think well we've arrived we just got to tweak it a little bit and it'll be fine 
And what I found in my research is that Martin Luther King was right when he said the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And what, what I just described as the arc of governing structures is a profound move toward justice. But the key is we're not there yet. Democracy at best is mob rule. And, you know, ask anyone who is the victim of a lynch mob, you know, when, when you start voting on some things, it can be very dangerous if they're in violation of everyone's inalienable rights. So I spent the last 15 years researching and uh, writing about uh, the non-aggression principle and how when you apply the non-aggression principle universally, the real shock that blows everybody's brains out of their heads just thinking about it, is the natural extension of the non-aggression principle is a stateless society. Because the state, the notion that a few people have the right to rule everyone else, uh, is corrupt at its core. The only way any government survives is through taxation. And taxation is taking somebody else's money w against their will. Now, if you did that to your neighbor, it would be obvious theft. But if you hire someone and you convince people that there's some sort of fabrication, you know, a lot of people got together and this is for the good of the group and everything. If you hire someone, call them government, and they go take the other person's money, somehow it's okay. They call it the social contract. Well, I looked through my files and I can't find my contract. I don't remember signing that one. And I think we were duped again. And once again, the emperor has no clothes but so many people worldwide have been duped by this massive global media and so forth that, um, that it's a real challenge now to wake people up to not only do we need to get beyond the notion of government, the same way people thought the end of slavery because it, who's gonna pick the cotton? You know, our entire economy is based on slavery. We're gonna die. <laughs> but, but it changed just because it was the right thing to do. It was the moral thing to do. Well, it's the same way with a stateless society. And as, you know, well, when they stopped slavery, then the Industrial Revolution came in and solved all those, pro those picking problems in a, very quickly. And the same thing will happen here. In every single sector, there are already whole system alternatives that do way better than government what we think government needed to do. So to, just to finalize that, um, what I have dedicated the rest of my life to is educating people about uh, how a, the, whenever we've gotten close to a stateless society in history, the evidence is that it's really successful in terms of, of uh, security, prosperity, and happiness. Uh, and then, but it's always, you know, the bad guys always come in and take over all that profitability uh, under the guise of some sort of ruler. So the first thing is, laying out the evidence for how it has worked. The second one is, okay, if we were in a stateless society and we didn't have any mommy or daddy state ruling over us, well, would it be just chaos and blood in the streets? I, I was concerned about that when I started in on this research. No, it turns out that, it, that the evidence is there that it would work way better. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that it's the only way humanity makes it out of this global tyranny uh, alive. Uh, and then the hardest challenge of all, um, and I'm writing a book about these three things, the third one is, okay, if it makes sense to move to a stateless society, then how in the world do we get from where we are now to that? That's what I'm working on.
Sounds like a conversation. <laughs> well, hopefully when we come out of this conversation, uh, we might have some uh, agreement on some possibilities for that adjacent possible next step, one of the yeah. next steps but uh, that we can take. But before I jump into some questions about, I'd like to get some of the examples of the stateless society from you. Steve, I'm sure you've been chomping at the bit patiently. Please. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, this has been very interesting. Uh, I love the idea of a universal morality for humanity because, in a way, everybody has a big laundry list of what ain't working and what they don't like. And so that's really how we've been, uh, we've been programmed and thrown to uh, focus on what we don't want. It's very challenging to get people to focus on what they do want, number one. Number two, you mentioned the term challenging truths. And for many of us over the past four years uh, or so, uh, three or four years since the COVID thing, we've seen a huge breach, at least in, uh, in my community of awakening people. Uh, there are some that are following the, uh, the mainstream prescriptions. Uh, you know, they call it follow the science. It's really follow the money if you follow the science yes. <laughs> enough. Uh, and then there's other people who uh, we call it the great upwising, where people are waking up and wising up to recognize that we've been hoodwinked by a bunch of winking hoods and that the only way forward is for us to cohere together in uh, in one, uh, uh, not around one obviously top-down system, but from a bottom-up realization. I think that's what you're looking to spark. So in the, uh, in the, the years that you've had this Thrive community running, um, what did you find the challenges were in getting people, first of all, to wake up, and then once they did, uh, to begin to gear their lives toward making a difference based on that waking up? What are the challenges, and yeah. how do you see us moving forward from that? I, I would call it a wall of denial that's you know starting to come down, but it's up there. Well, it's a very interesting question because we assumed that our biggest audience in the beginning would be uh, the the conspiracy community, or you know, a, for a better name is the the truth movement. Uh, and actually, we did some demographics uh, after a few years, and seventy percent of our uh, network was actually from the consciousness movement. Mm. And I, what the realization that we got from that was um, that people who have been involved in the consciousness movement tend to know a lot about how to handle their emotions. And when people begin waking up to what's really going on, because it's not good news. The only good news about learning what's really going on is that then you're getting your feet on the ground. And if you're going to run a track race, uh, or you're going to go over to see your neighbor or something like that, you've got to get some traction in order to actually get from A to B. To solve a problem, you need to, an accurate diagnosis. And so that, so it takes some time. And in the meantime, um, there's very little incentive for people to wake up to a global domination agenda when they're looking at losing their, you know, some friends, losing their reputation, losing their worldview, you know, when everything begins to shake uh, but over time, people realize, okay, it's getting worse and worse. You know, the, I, I remember there's a, a, a quote that I will never uh, forget from, uh, from the, the Swami. Um, 
Whereas Swami said, the universe has us surrounded, might as well surrender. <laughs> I think it's very accurate. You know, we're surrounded, even by the global domination agenda, we are surrounded. So it's a matter of what are we surrendering into? It's not, it's not giving up. It's surrendering into your true nature, you know, who you really are. When you realize that you are the entire unified field being expressed through a, a system of Tauruses called the physical, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual, and so forth, then you can relax a lot about some of the drama that goes on or, you know, maybe I'm going to die and all that stuff that paralyzes people and go, okay, well, given who I really am, now what's the best use of me? So, um, so I think that's been the major challenge is just learning how to communicate to people in such a way that I'm not bombarding them with my own panic, my own fear, anger, whatever, but literally communicating important information in a way that I'm on their team. You know, I, they, I'm only going to go as far as they want me to go. Uh, and to the degree to which they can have their own emotions rather than having to deal with mine, then there's the space and the time for them to actually come into important realizations. And I'll tell you, I'm, I mostly learned that one from Kimberly because uh, Kimberly was the director on both Thrive One and Thrive Two. And when I was narrating Thrive One, you know, in our set up in Oregon, uh, and I start, we moved into the third chapter, which was the global domination agenda. And I, I have very passionate feelings about the billions of lives that have been destroyed through this covert agenda. So I'm starting to talk like this. And Kimberly says, well, let's, let's do that take one more time. And you may be a little more gentle. To, anyway, uh, finally, she said to me, I want you to come from your confidence about the way out and now just share the information, but leave people space to feel whatever they feel. Well, that next take, I felt like a warm bath had come over me. I really felt connection. I just said what I had to say. And Kimberly said, that's it. Let's take a break. So I came off the set and a large percentage of the crew was in tears. And I realized, okay, something just happened. I just got a firsthand lesson in feminine power. You can't cram this information down anyone's throat. You can't scare them into it. It's a matter of actually connecting and then inviting them to, to, uh, to listen uh, as long as it works for them to continue. Otherwise, People need to move at their own pace. So that, I think, has been the, the, the major hurdle. Um, we've gotten a little better at it. I still learn, you know, every time I bring up stuff like this at a birthday party or a wedding, and Kimberly kicks me under the table. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's... <laughs> it's, it's interesting, that advice that Kimberly gave you, when we get this done, I'm going to get that and, and add that into my morning meditation because part of my... yeah. I ask and every day <laughs> to give me the, the ability to control my passion yeah. so that others can hear and feel what I'm going to say and to have that control because I fight that <clears throat> all the time for similar reasons when I look at it. Michael, I got, I got to interrupt you for just a second because I'm realizing that between you and Kelly and Foster and Kimberly and me and Trudy, this is how we guys get our kicks. <laughs> and, and, and we're all blessed and we're very blessed to have partners in life at, that have added that feminine which is one of the things that I've been trying to 
promote for a long time as well is that we have to bring the feminine back into the political leadership because that's one of the biggest reasons we've gotten off track for so long, thousands of years, uh, is the, that without that balance, uh, and so we're all blessed to have that partner that can bring that balance uh, into our lives. Uh, yeah, I look forward to meeting Kelly. I, I know and love Trudy dearly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you will hopefully at some time. You know, one of the things when you said about not good news, one of the things that's so been disappointing to me in our efforts to bring people to the, uh, what is that, uh, what I believe strongly is part of this, uh, the needle that can puncture the stranglehold and control of our political system. Because what I'm about is how do we get government on the side of the people? How do we be, how can we make government a facilitator for the kind of evolutionary changes that you eloquently just exposed? And uh, we have to get it out of the control of the leadership of these two parties and the yes. special interests that, that control them. Uh, and, this, and to have people's lack of gratitude for the existence they were given and born into, uh, to, to have enough gratitude to, and to put it in perspective of, to want to give back, to pay forward, as they say now, uh, to future generations. Uh, they're all into, not all, most all are into just, you know, self-indulgence uh, on whatever level it pleases them. And that's that to me has been one of the biggest disappointments I face all the time. Um, and I think your what uh, Kimberly said in the way she said that, it'll help me as well. <laughs> uh, you know, I had so, an experience yeah, yeah, recently. Yeah. Uh, um, I was invited to do a, a talk at the Conscious Life Expo a few months ago. Um, and it was a, one of the most encouraging experiences I've had in a long time, because back in um, 2012, I think it was, after the, the Thrive came out, Kimberly and I were invited to do a workshop there, and we, were, we pretty much were the rabbit hole at that point. And there was even a prominent uh, New Age leader who backed out of, the, um, of speaking at the conference because he didn't want to be associated in any way with the conspiracy nut. So here we are, you know, um, 10 years later, and we were invited to talk uh, in an entire theme called Down the Rabbit Hole. And they had speakers from all over the world. They had an entire auditorium devoted to it. It was standing room only every single time. And for me, uh, it was really heartening because when Kimberly and I set out creating the Thrive Movement, <clears throat> one of our main goals was to help facilitate the merger of the consciousness movement with the truth movement, but without compromise on either side, to actually have them meet at a higher level um, where they realized a true collaboration. And I've been seeing a ton of evidence of it happening. Uh, the estimates are that over a million progressives have actually left the political spectrum out of their experience of the Thrive movement. And that's really encouraging, but I still didn't, I wasn't ready for, at that conference, which is mostly, um, I would say, liberals, uh, historically, uh, and there were 14,000 people there, 
my estimate in talking with other people was probably 80% of them were already, already on this same page about what's actually going on in the world in terms of nefarious agendas and the need for us to organize and use our consciousness to stay centered while actually solving and transcending these problems. So I, I said to the group during a, a panel, I said to the audience, I, I said, I believe what's happening in this room and in this hotel is a milestone moment for what's happening all over the world where a critical mass of people are transcending the fake polarity of political rulership and actually coming together on truth and freedom and harmonious collaboration. And I, I only felt that more and more the more I was at that weekend. And then uh, a couple of people stood up and acknowledged Kimberly and me as some of the grandparents of actually creating the merger of those two movements. And for me, that's one of the most satisfying results that I've ever experienced in my life. And I'm thrilled to see people like you guys um, who understand a lot what's going on politically, but also understand a lot in terms of consciousness and human nature, looking to create a pathway toward ultimately where nobody's dominating anyone but realistically, we're going to be in a political world for a while, so how do we handle that? So thanks for taking that on. Yeah, that's exactly right, is that it's not going to change in any, in our lifetimes, in this existence lifetime. Uh, and uh, one of the things that's helped me sometimes in dealing with the, the realization, you refer to it and I do uh, as well, more often than I care to, is an agenda. And process theology and uh, help me get, get a different perspective that it, it is a part of an evolutionary uh, self-interest rather than that there are people up there who have this nef total nefarious like puppeteers that people want to think of that that it's been more of, a, of an evolution of natural self-interest to drive these actions that now continue to compound themselves and move us towards a phrase that, that you used in, in the uh, conversation, I think it was with Bobby Kennedy, uh, which was turnkey totalitarianism, is to understand that that's, to me, that was what is a really focused phrase to help people realize is that this slow taking away of, of our rights and, and turning it over with the 5G and, and all of the uses of that so that it becomes, so you don't even realize that you're in that pin uh, and you've been pinned in and you don't even know it. Uh, but uh, it helps. Well, I, I, I'd be happy to comment on that. And I think Please. I'll need to disagree with you somewhat. Um, but first of all, let me set How up the swap. Let me set up the Swami here. Swami, <laughs> is there a key to the universe? Oh, well, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news, no key to the universe. Good news, it's been left unlocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an oldie but goodie, man. That was one of the first okay, things. Okay, I'll, that... I'll send you the invoice. <laughs> <laughs> and so let me comment a little bit on what you said, Michael, because I... Uh, I've come to, I think, a different understanding. Uh, I think that there are truly evil people behind the curtains uh, doing very nefarious agenda, and they have been doing it for centuries, and I've been documenting that for decades. 
And uh, that's not to say, oh, well, we just happen to have a few psychos in the world. I've also spent years researching the lives of these destructive people. And virtually every time I found a history of childhood abuse. So I don't think psychopaths are born. Maybe there's a past life thing that carries on, but most fundamentally, I think that the human nature that you, you referred to is a very positive thing. I think the unified field wants us to thrive, and the more we are in love and in harmony with the universe, the more healthier we're going to be, the better our relationships are going to be. But there's about 3% in every population, every region of the world, that are psychopaths and sociopaths, meaning they, they truly, uh, with a sociopath, they don't care what you're experiencing. What, they don't care about the results of their action on other human beings. They can't even feel it. And with a psychopath, they actually get off on, uh, on really destroying people's lives and torturing them and so forth. So we need to recognize that these beings exist so that we obsolete them, so we get them some healing, but so that we don't allow them to run the U.S. government, run the central banks, run the World Economic Forum, the CDC, the FDA, and I could go on and on because that's the structure that we have allowed to, um, to occur in the world. And um, so how did this kind of bad behavior get started? Yes, through abuse um, and that needs healing. I, you can't always trace back where the abuse started. There are many very smart people who've done a lot of research who basically think that there is an extraterrestrial agenda uh, by several different species to control our behavior, to take over the planet and that type of thing. I, I don't have an authoritative opinion on that. I've researched it a lot and it actually makes a lot of sense. I'm open to the possibility of that, um, but I don't know. And given that we don't know and we can't relate directly to uh, these extraterrestrial entities, I think what we need to do is deal effectively with the human beings that we know are doing these behaviors uh, as quickly as possible. And that's mostly a matter of, of recognizing that they're, they're not evil souls, but they've been disconnected by abuse from their soul. So they're doing evil behavior, which in my definition, evil behavior is knowing a violation of the non-aggression principle. When you know that you're violating other people and their property and so forth, that's evil behavior. And so I don't think it's what the term you used was the emergence of a natural self-interest. I think we all have natural self-interest, but I think that that's also balanced and mitigated by the non-aggression principle and by our natural empathy with other human beings. When we see that we've hurt somebody's feelings, you know, we don't like it. When we see that someone is bullying someone else, there's an inclination to try to resolve that, that issue. Most of the people I've met would give me the shirt off their back in a storm. Really, that, that's the, the kind of feeling that I have about humanity. So I think it's critical that we understand that this is a whole different agenda. And I've been documenting it literally since... Um, you know, in my historical research, since the creation of the Illuminati in, in Germany in exactly the same year as the Declaration of Independence. And no coincidence, the, the, the European central bankers in England, the, the king in particular, realized that they had lost America uh, 
and politically and the the uh, and financially. So they immediately set about to create a global network of secret societies that would regain domination over America and the rest of the world through covert means. And they, they, they literally, these are in their documents, which, which got discovered. And they, it would be a strategy of pitting what we would now call the left against the right. We would call it the communists against the fascists or something. But, but it could also be the old against the young, the dark skin versus the, the light skin, the, this gender versus that gender. And look how that's playing out. This is a very conscious agenda on the part of a global deep state that is beyond any of the so-called political isms. And I, that, people may not understand that, but we've done our best to, to actually document that, wake people up to it, show them where they can reach, search it on their own, because unless you realize that, uh, it's very difficult to get a, a foothold in solving the problem. The, uh, the depths of the problem that you just laid out, <clears throat> for most people, once they have a, an understanding of that, uh, they tend to be overwhelmed with it and think it's impossible, and they just back away. I had a nonprofit called Rebellious Truths where I, everyone was a, was a millennial. I was the only non-millennial. And we all came together around the movie Thrive. That was one of the first, oh, that wow. was one of the things that we, uh, in the, in the fo early formation of it. But after a year or two, for these young people, after they had learned the depths of the problem uh, that we were working with, and we had gotten really involved with David Walker, the former Comptroller General of the United States. So we had to, for 10 years, we, we were working closely with he and his team. So they really saw the inside workings of the government at that level. Uh, and they, after two and a half years, so they came to me collectively after the election of 2012 and said, we've just got to get on with our lives. They were overwhelmed. Yeah. And I said, I understand. And a lot of tears were shed. And I, and when they, I said goodbye to them all. And I said, but I, I, at my age, I was 62 already at that time, about to turn 63. I said, I've had a life that went beyond my expectations. This is what I'm dedicating the rest of my life to. And, and, but I understand. And, uh, and today I'm working with these incredible young people that are the same millennials 10 years, 12 years later, and now the Gen Z group, because I'm the state volunteer coordinator for the Common Sense Party. And there is an amazing core group of people who will see the, the depths of the problem, but are still willing to, to come out there and, and give it their all every day to work towards a solution. And um, But most just get overwhelmed. And, and I, I love that you brought that up, Michael, because we ran into that a lot also. And I totally understand, even with our own, uh, you know, children and grandchildren, it's like when you're trying to figure out um, how to put food on your table and you've got, you know, three little kids uh, running around and inflation's running rampant and so forth. The notion of taking on a global domination agenda in your spare time is, yeah. is is both practically and emotionally overwhelming, just like you're saying. And it's one of the reasons, you know, people have been saying to Kimberly and me in, in public settings ever since Thrive One came out, uh, you know, are, are you going to leave the country? You know, are you going to leave California, given that you understand what's going on? And I'm like, no, listen, if someone at my age 
with my privileges and my awareness and my global network, if I'm going to run and hide somewhere, who's going to who's going to fight this fight? So I, I'm trying to do as much as I can so that the younger generations can put their minds to things that they absolutely need to take care of um, and then also have a, a thriving world to live in later on with their own grandchildren. Well, that's where our ranks are. Basically, 80 percent of the of these young millennials, Gen Z, who see their future ahead and they're they're they they're not going to accept that kind of a future they're, and they're willing to fight. And, and the other 20 percent are people our age that are in, in similar situations, most uh, that have dedicated this time to say, hey, I want to pass on to my my children and grandchildren uh, opportunities that hopefully will exceed those even that I had. Uh, but the darn, I'm not going to give up and let this turnkey totalitarianism change the future, of not just for my children, but the future generations. Uh, yeah, well said. Yeah, that's uh, Buster, I have a question. Uh, you know, you use that term, uh, a uh, universal morality for humanity. And that's really uh, uh, there does need to be a unifying principle. We know what we don't want. We've got laundry lists of that. Um, how do we create a, uh, a meme, a phrase, a gathering spot that reflects what we, that we recognizing that we really all want the same thing? There's another quote from Martin Luther King, I'm paraphrasing, that says, you know, when, when, when those who want peace are as organized as those who want war, we won't have to march for peace anymore. So... Yeah. Uh, this is really about coherence. You know, the, the bad guys have Boku coherence, and they've got the money behind all that coherence. And it seems to me that, uh, as you were talking about, bringing together consciousness and truth, because I think that they've been separated, that yep. the consciousness movement, so many years, like back in the old days, when it was politics, and they'd say, we don't want to go there. Right. And I would say, well, look, there has already come here. Yeah are paying attention right and so it's heartening that in 10 years the the uh, you know the whole the whole wheat crowd has kind of gotten uh, awakened to a certain extent yep. but there is that cognitive dissonance where uh, how do you how do you let go of the ground of being that's been established falsely I would say yeah. by this culture of separation by this materialist uh, relentless me versus you culture that wants to divide and conquer. That is a very tough thing to separate oneself from because it's totally immersive. So yeah. in this transition, how do we assist people in, uh, how do we create, first of all, a, a unifying meme that doesn't become uh, a mass formation yeah. uh, that dominates over other people, but recognizes that domination itself is the problem? Well, it's a, a super powerful inquiry. And, you know, looking over the past few decades for myself, one of the realizations that I came to in very general terms is there's about a third of the people who are awake already to what's really going on. There's about another third of the people who don't want to know, who genuinely, at this point in their lives anyway, will do anything to shut down that conversation. They don't want to know. They, they sense that they couldn't handle it. Uh, and... But then there's another third that want to know, but have not been sufficiently informed yet. And I've learned to put my attention to them and not bother battling the most uh, stubborn. You know, go for 
for the low-hanging low fruit and then have a great time doing it. You know, you've been really yeah. one of my uh, guiding lights and mentors in making sure that, um, that you can take very serious topics lightly because otherwise they're not going to go very deep. And you can see, I mean, the success that you've had and the success that J.P. Sears is having now, you see the power of satire. You see the power of when you confront, when you're in the presence of someone who knows what's really going on, isn't shying away from it, but is also enjoying the process of human relations uh, and information. That's just one of the most inspiring things I know. So it's a reminder that we each have our own styles. You know, you with the humor, um, Michael, with, you know, dealing effectively with young people. You know, a, a lot of what um, the Thrive Movement has been doing, I remember very vividly, we, were, uh, we sat down for our first production meeting at the beginning of setting out to do Thrive One uh, in, uh, in Ashland, Oregon. We sat down with a production crew. And the first thing that I said to them is, we're going to be making a movie about really difficult stuff. And so one of my commitments is that it needs to be completely honest and true. And secondly, it needs to be completely wrapped in beauty and infused with beauty. Because if people, if it's conveyed with beauty, people will feel an, inten an intrinsic trust in the message because they know that we're honoring the beauty that, that is there in nature. So we spent a lot of extra money and a lot of extra time making Thrive as beautiful as we possibly could. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons for its success. And in conveying the message, I told that story about Kimberly directing me. We wanted to make the conveying of the message as deep in the experience of love, the alignment with the field, the alignment with other human beings, souls, as we possibly could. And that's what I'm just encouraging people to do. As you wake up, find your own purpose, find the sector you want to work on, find the topic you want to work on, find the level of engagement. Is it you want to work on meeting immediate needs or do you want to work at a systemic shift level? Or do you want to work uh, at, fun, at the fundamental worldview level working on the consciousness shift? Because those three are very different. And people, when they discover that they can choose which one they want to work on, uh, are very relieved. It's, it's solved a lot of activist burnout problems. But once people, uh, you know, get the clarity about what they're really up to, then I just encourage them to make it as fun and as beautiful and loving as you can. Because, you know, you're probably not going to take dietary advice from a really unhealthy looking person. And if you're talking about how to thrive, uh, and you're miserable and complaining and whiny and feeling helpless, you know, people are just going to move on to door two, door number two. So. <laughs> so yeah. Very true. So very, very true. Uh, and also, Foster, I so appreciate your notion that even, you know, that even people who are on the, the sociopathic spectrum, possibly because they've been uh, exposed to sociopathic institutions, are capable of transformation. The Swami, the Swami says, uh, behind every soulless heel is an unhealed soul. Oh wow! Oh, that is so perfect. I, you may have seen. I, I've done a number of shows with female survivors. You know, surviving victims of MK Ultra satanic ritual abuse as children and even as yeah. young adults. 
And it was one of the most inspiring things that I've ever come across because people like Kathy O'Brien um, and uh, uh, Serena Faith Masterson, and there's a new woman I'm working with now from Australia named Judith Richards, and they're all three um, some of the most enlightened, loving, strong, clear human beings that I've ever met. So they represent the proof that there's no guarantee, but it's a possibility that the human being can recover from the absolute worst evil treatment that you can imagine of any human beings doing to other human beings. And each one of them talked about the turning point moment was when through the support of, of others in two cases and a just literally a cosmic flash in the third case, when they had that moment of reconnection with their soul, because they all acknowledged that the dynamic of MK Ultra mind control is you torture a person, the integrity of their being such that it separates from its coherence, you know, its, its integrity, and also separates from its cosmic connection, literally from its soul. And so here, Kathy O'Brien talk about what happened when she re, when she felt the connection with her soul again. That's the key to the whole thing. And she actually told me, she said, during the entire, it was like 25 years, I think, that she was in the program. The, during the entire time, she never dreamt. Wow. That's, I mean, the dreaming is part of our soul's connection for healing and, and guidance, you know, in these lower brainwave states. And literally, so they disconnect them from their capacity to dream. And as soon as she regained her sense of wholeness of who she was, she started dreaming. And it was just, you know, on the path of love ever since. Wow. The, uh, the, are you familiar with the uh, uh, man's search for meaning? Uh, by Victor Finkel. Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel, yeah. Frankel. yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I am. I first got that book and read it, I don't know, 40 years ago. Uh, and I've read it a number of times and shared it with others. Uh, that goes to what you just were saying about the most horrific experiences, but it's how, what yeah. you deal with it up here, how you interpret it. Um, the, uh, yeah. Let me, let me mention one other thing, because I've been thinking a lot, you know, as I was approaching this conversation about the path, the, the political path, the transition path to what I'm hoping for, a, you know, a, a truly free and voluntary uh, society of humanity. And um, one of the points that I want to make about that, um, and one of my uh, mentors by his books, a man named Murray Rothbard, was one of the most eloquent and wisest economy economists of our generation um, and he talked a lot about this transition from where we are to ultimately a stateless society and he said the key is to educate about the non-aggression principle and then when you're working with people in collaboration always have the goal in mind because if you if you don't have a place that you're going to uh, then it's like, you know, you sail out of San Francisco Bay uh, and you, you're thinking maybe you'll go to, to Japan or Hawaii or something, but you don't really know and you don't have any maps or a compass. Well, you're going to be in trouble pretty soon. You're going to be wandering aimlessly, even if your sails are good and, and your ship holds up. And so I think that, that really what's been missing along this line of the universal morality is if we keep that in mind, 
then we can recognize that we're doing interim steps. You know, I, I have this fantasy of uh, having an administration made up uh, in the United States, having a, pre a presidential administration made up of people like uh, Bobby Kennedy, Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy, along with, you know, Ron Johnson and Jim Jordan, just all the, the actual honest, loving truth seekers who have still been willing to put up with the political games, but they're actually beginning to really gain a voice right now. Imagine if they just blew the whole right-left thing out of the water and came together, and I know this is what you're encouraging to a great extent, is let's come together around common sense. And the most common sense thing that I know of is that individual liberty comes first. We've been duped by the communists and by the socialists and, and the fascists to think that you need to give up your individuality for the good of the group. And that's led to hundreds of millions of, of murders and starvation and so forth. So we, we actually got to get that finally. And instead of panicking and going to the next regime as this, this fake agenda collapses, we need to actually keep that goal in mind of how do we organize around the non-aggression principle. And this is what I'm writing in my book about now is what, what it would look like when you have voluntary education. You go to whatever school, uh, you know, really fits the, the parents and the children's needs. And you have a free market in honest currencies. And you have, you know, if someone wants to put poison on their food and eat it, they're free to do that on their own, but they can't poison other people's food. They can't lie about what's, what's in the food. So you have, you know, organic polyculture farming. And I could go into every sector. The, the key thing is that the whole system solutions already exist in every sector. So if we can, amongst other things, use the political system while it's still in existence to help transcend the political system, only by keeping that goal in mind and not putting up with, with uh, violations of the non-aggression principle, then I think that we can move naturally toward our, our birthright, which is to actually be secure and, and, and free. And the last thing I'll say about that is in, in uh, I, I gave a talk to a group yesterday about how to get from here to there, an international group. And we had laid out a business plan in Thrive One. Now, it's not, you can't impose freedom. You can protect it, but you can't impose an, a, a stateless society. <laughs> um, but in Thrive One, we laid out three natural overlapping stages. And the first, first stage is, uh, is kind of a, a Dennis Kucinich-like uh, honoring the best of the liberal progressives, where you, know, you use the taxation that we already have. You, know, you cut the military budget. Uh, in half, you get rid of the Federal Reserve, you've instantly got trillions available to, to fund the transition, not only of the United States, but of the entire world, just with that funding alone. And, you, and meanwhile, you take care of those who have been most disadvantaged by the system and are most in need for some period of years. Uh, ultimately, you know, the nanny state's not going to be taking care of you, but there's a transition. So it will naturally lead toward more of a Ron Paul type of of uh, honest, conservative, you know, old school, uh, smaller government protecting the commons and protecting individual rights, you know, no foreign wars of aggression, sound currency. And as that shrinking of government is happening, people are going to be so prosperous and they're going to be so secure that it's going to, when you, when you, when they're going to look at the question of, okay, how much government should we leave? It's going to be a joke because the notion of a government the notion of authority over others, that a few people somehow have 
the divine right to rule or the majority vote or something like that, that's going to get blown out of the water. And people are going to go, look, look how, how much more we're thriving just from really shrinking the government. So let's don't leave the poison. Don't, don't leave the cancer in the body politic. Let's get rid of the cancer of authority, get rid of politics altogether, and then actually be in a society, in a society of voluntary association with truly free markets and independent uh, competing security and insurance and, uh, and a dispute resolution, but where every organization and every individual is held accountable to the non-aggression principle. Wow. You think a vision like that, which, I, yeah. which I've been referring to since I first got involved with Charles Eisenstein's work, uh, <clears throat> which was just prior to Thrive, actually, was uh, getting turned on to his work, is the more beautiful world. And we've added <clears throat> the, world, the word just, the more beautiful and just world that our hearts know is possible. That's been the vision. And I've said for... 12 plus years that Charles holds a lantern for humanity to navigate through the fog towards to the example you gave of, of with a ship. I've said for years, you can't sail set sail if you don't have a destination or you right. won't how to tack into the wind uh, and the changing currents. You'll never get there. You have to have a destination in mind. And that is the more beautiful and just world that our hearts know is possible. Uh, and which would fit perfectly into the non-aggression principle uh, yeah. where that world would, would exist together. Um, but well, that I, I've been, possible. I've been, you mentioned Charles Eisenstein and I think he's a great writer and um, he and I have had some online debates years ago uh, because I think we share a lot of values of how we want people to thrive, but our means were very different. And when we were originally debating, uh, he was pretty much a socialist and wanted to take money out of people's bank accounts in order to just redistribute wealth and so forth. And he also really thought I was a conspiracy nut. This was like in the early 20 teens. Uh, and I've been delighted to see his honest awakening because it can be very embarrassing awakening to what you didn't know when you're a very public figure. And I really admire that he's been very honest about what he called conspiranoia and realizing, okay, there's actually real conspiracy going on here, and we better be aware of it. And also moving beyond some of the, the socialist and communist principles, and I'm thrilled to see him really dedicating most of his time now to supporting Bobby, because Bobby is very aware of the deep state. He's still a politician. He's still a Democrat. But he, you know, he doesn't uh, suffer coercion at all. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. I, I'm thrilled to see that. That's the kind of alliance, this, what we would have thought of as strange bedfellows, that is emerging in the world right now, and I think it holds great hope. It does. It does. It is not It is beautiful to see his transition uh, and now working on Bobby's team. Uh, yeah. It's great. Uh, UBI, Universal Basic Income, which Andrew introduced into the conversation in the last presidential debates, uh, that is part of that process, and I encourage people to look at UBI, the transition that you referred to from where we are to goes through a period of having to expand its social policies to give people the time to make life choices to change uh, from the circumstances that they've, they've moved into or found themselves in and give them a path out of that. That's where the compassion, the love, uh, and love is the only emotion stronger than hate 
and love will conquer all uh, of that. And uh, so recognize- let, let me address UBI for a minute, because I think it's a really interesting one, because it sounds so good. You know, it, it's how we're going to take care of people. When I ask most young people what they think socialism is when they self-identify as socialists, they say, that's when the government finally takes care of everyone. And I said, well, that, you know, look it up in the dictionary. No, it's actually when the government takes over uh, control of the means of production. <laughs> so they duped you once again. So um, the notion of UBI, yes, in transition, if we, if we uh, took tax money that had already been uh, acquired by the government uh, for the military or for to pay this fake interest on the fake Federal Reserve and that type of stuff, then I would say that that would be a morally justifiable uh, means of getting some help to the people who are most in need. But universal basic income fundamentally, as long as it lasts, is taking money from, other, from some people to give to others, and you're taking it against the will of the first people. So I've been working a lot on ethical artificial intelligence, and one of the most exciting things to emerge out of that is some people have really taught me that one of the most giant scams in the world right now um, is uh, covert data acquisition by the big tech companies. Because basically for you know, 30, 40 years, their business plan has been to uh, get money from venture capital and the government to uh, create fantastic technology so you can afford to give uh, really convenient stuff, really cheap or free to people, and then you scrape all their data without their knowing it and sell it uh, for billions to military, government, big tech, all of that, that type of stuff. Well, that, that whistle's starting to get blown right now. And I believe the best way to get people ongoing universal basic income is blow the whistle on this covert data scraping, have people realize that data rights are human rights. People have no right to take your data without informing you and getting your agreement. And then, and that'll be happening over the next few years. And, and then give people the option to sell whatever part of their data that they want uh, and keep the rest private. And so some of these people have been doing calculations on that. You know, Andrew suggests $1,000 a month. This would give people way more than that but there wouldn't be any coercion involved. So this would be a technological moral solution to a kind of a political and social problem. Uh, and these are the types of solutions that I think are gonna be emerging where we don't have to sacrifice uh, our morals at all in order to take care, help take care of people. But to do that, we've gotta get government on the side of the people to be a facilitator to these kinds of discussions and, and solutions. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's what, so the challenge is how do we get government out of the leadership of control of the leadership that exists and the special interests? And from Ross Perot to all the people over the last many years that I've been working with on this, the realization has finally emerged that the only way is we got to play within the existing rules of the system to get inside of the system, to change the rules, to bring a spotlight to those and a new level of accountability and change it because every effort from the outside at best is given nothing more than lip service at best uh, and, and it's never succeeded no matter how many people we elect from the outside etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's why the need of a new kind not just another party but a new kind of party 
the one that will be that needle has to be a new kind of party that allows people and acknowledges people's total diversity of beliefs and opinions and says, as long as you're respectful, inclusive, uh, and responsible, we will help you get elected and it good people who are who then can become dependent upon the their constituents for their election, not upon the leadership right. in the state. Uh, yeah. That flips the script so that it truly is from the voters up the issues and the importance of those and representatives who will reflect the needs and concerns of their uh, constituents. Not yeah, and getting rid of something like per corporate personhood is a good example of exactly that. Just exactly. it makes no common sense at all, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just leading, as everyone knew it would, to massive destruction and bias in the system. So that's where I hope of one of the things that you might be of interest in is how to use some of your time to help help get that political solution. Uh, there so that it will be able to provide the time and the and much of the means to facilitate the kind of evolutionary changes that we need before this turnkey totalitarianism has a more opportunity to get more control uh, and ever get implemented to the degree that it is already in some parts of the world. Well, it's an interesting question, and, and I, I welcome your suggestions as to how I could be helpful in regards to that. In general, um, there are so many people working on tweaking politics and so few people working on getting, you know, uh, Andrew Yang talks about Americans' broken political system, and I totally agree. But the, the, the only way to fix it in the long run is to get rid of it, in my opinion. And there's so few people working on that that most of my attention go, is... Uh, I, I want to be the the lighthouse. I want to be the beacon to keep the goal in mind that we're that we're heading toward. But in the meantime, though, I, you know, I haven't voted in 15 years. I, I doubt that I will ever vote again. The, for me, the notion of voting on who's going to be your slave master is just so vile that that I, that I don't do it. But I really honor people who choose, who are awake, and choose to participate in the system for whatever good that will do in transition, because that's, it's absolutely valid as a transition uh, strategy. So I welcome suggestions as to how, with my stand, I can still be helpful. And I guess one way is, like, publicly, I talk, I talk in support of people like Bobby Kennedy and Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy because of their ethics and their integrity not because ultimately they represent the political system, but because they're bringing those kinds of ethics into the political system in what I hope is the transition phase. Yeah. Well, one of the specific things that, that you can do is do exactly that. Talk about we need to bring these two parties in and the rules, in example, in California and every state, they've got after Ross Perot in particular, they elevated the bars beyond what they think, and so far it's proven that they've been that right, no one's been able to form a new party of any, uh, based on any principles other than allowing a few to come into existence based on nothing but staunch orthodoxy, which they knew they could control and would never go anywhere. We're the real threat because soon as a party like ourselves would come into being in California, 
those people who want to run for office who are already elected, if they knew that they could get reelected by doing the right thing, the thing that their constituents want and their hearts and their intelligence tells them is the right thing, they could stand up to the leadership of the parties and the moneyed interests and say, no, that's, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and the threat of being kicked out of their job, losing their job, if they don't adhere to leadership, would go away. And as yeah. soon as that threat is taken away, we believe most all those people, most of uh, all of the recently elected people for sure, want to do the right thing. And I think that's a really uh, important and sound point. Uh, and of course, even with that approach, you're depending on honest elections. But to exactly to your point, how do you fix that? Right. Can't fix it from the outside. That's why we've realized is you've got to get inside, yeah. figure out how to get inside that playing field so that you can actually begin to bring the light and make the changes to those so that we can bring back a level of integrity to the election process. That's why the, the beauty of what we're doing is to use the existing system, you have to play within all the existing rules to get inside of it by giving people that option to stand up to do the right thing yeah. and hold on to their jobs. And that's where a new kind of party like us can do exactly that. That's why we're their worst nightmare, because yeah. as soon as we're in a, a party that can apply those same campaign finance laws and the same advantages that they have from the inside to people that don't have to be under their thumb for control of the money, then we can begin to make these changes. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I and I admire tremendously anyone who's willing to, to you know, jump into that briar patch and <laughs> and, and fight for for justice. But I was invited um, in 2012, before the 2012 election, to to run for president by the Libertarian Party and for vice president with Jill Stein on the with the Green Party. And I said, you know, I'm really honored by the invitation. And uh, it's just not the best use of me. First of all, I, I, you know, I would never get elected in this particular political structure. Um, and, uh, and secondly, I, I ultimately, I, I, it's not my calling to be the, even if I got elected, to be the head of, head of the biggest mafia in human, human history. But I agree with you. There are good people uh, coming out and, and things like your common sense party can shine the light and help them get the support that, that they need because it's a, is that I think is a really important part of the transition strategy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a, a contextual thing into the mix because uh, there's an old quote from Breitbart that says that politics is downstream of, from culture and that the first thing that has to change is the culture. Uh, and, and that, it, you know, with, uh, with an understanding, let's, let's take it three steps, a meme, a movement, and a community. The meme would be something related to this unifying principle, related to this universal morality, the, the prize that everybody has their eye on, as, uh, as you said, uh, Murray Rothbard suggested many years ago. And so that would be the, the meme that travels, that captures people's attention, that creates a movement. And this movement is not a movement to dominate, it's a movement to end domination. Mm-hmm. When makes it, it's it's very hard to get because we're so infused with this. I gotta dominate, 
or else I'm going to be dominated. That, that's been the, each political party, I mean, even your friend Ron DeSantis, he wants to impose his morality on the people of Florida. He's banning books in Florida, like the Biden administration is banning, uh, is censoring information about COVID. So each side has its uh, morality, quote unquote, that it wants to impose on the other side. I like the definition of morality as a voluntary change for the better so that uh, we encourage that and then we create a movement and then a community that actually grows up to make these strategic decisions so that there's actually a movement of people to hold up these these new political structures that are that are temporarily going to make a change because that's what's required you know that coherence that um, those forces have been cultivating for what is it 300 years or so or more uh, in order to counteract that there has to be an awakening a mass awakening of human beings to recognize a common a common uh, goal a common intention that is not going to be imposed from the top down I, I, I love that approach and it's interesting you know I, I know Andrew Yang his uh, sense of a platform. He was trying to keep it simple, I know, and it was basically free people, thriving communities, and vibrant democracy. So look in terms of the words, how much we're all on the same page, because I'm all, free people is the core of what I'm, <laughs> what I'm after. Uh, thriving communities, uh, I totally agree, and that's kind of, the, you go from the meme to the movement to the, yeah. to the community. Uh, as long as that community is not coerced, uh, and then his third one is the, the only one I really don't agree with, which is the vibrant democracy. You know, the United States of America, they never mentioned democracy in the Constitution. It was supposed to be a republic. And the difference between the republic and the, 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 um, the democracy was that the majority vote could never supersede the, the rights of the individual. Well, that was conveniently dropped out because... If you're trying to rule all the people of the world, then you need to convince them that uh, that either the majority will, can rule them or an emergency can rule them or something gets to supersede their individual rights. So it'll be fun to have uh, strategy and tactic sessions in the future with all of us. Just a note about the word, the choice of the word democracy versus the democratic republic uh, is to play, it, unfortunately, is because of the civic ignorance of the general population to, to try to use a more nuanced, truthful words about a democratic republic. Uh, uh, yeah. What's beyond the, the unfortunate level of education for most people. Yeah. Yeah. It's very tricky with language these days. And uh, somebody just sent me an email this morning. They were, they were freaking out because this is a very erudite, uh, writer um and uh he every time he goes to the dictionary for important words he realizes wait a minute no that's not what i was taught and so, so he gave me a bunch of examples um and actually republic and what and democracy was, was one of them and i said well, are you are you conferring with a digital uh dictionary or a, an actual book and he said well you're right I'm, i went to the digital sources he said i i do have my grandfather's Oxford Dictionary. I went and checked with that, and yeah, they're completely different. And, you know, one of these days we'll look back on the good old days 
when the definition of a word couldn't be changed by a small unelected cabal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow, what, what a conversation, Foster. <laughs> Michael, do you have any, any final uh, questions or, um, or anything to add? This has been really rich. No, only to, to uh, invite you to consider uh, using some of your influence to help bring the Ford Party and the Common Sense Party uh, to the awareness of people and, and into fruition, help us birth these new parties so that we can break through uh, here in California. We believe California is the perfect place because of circumstances and the nature of the people here. Yes. To be that innovative example of the new kind of political organization uh, that will help us on that next step. Well, I would be happy to do that. I, I'm thrilled that you exist. And people are always asking me, okay, what do we do in transition? And the fact that thoughtful people, you know, caring people are willing to take this on in the way that you and Andrew uh, and others are, I, I really admire and I will be happy to promote that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, with that, my cold is uh, getting the better of me, so it's a good time as well to wrap up. I'm sure the audience must be getting tired. Steve, you want to say anything last? And Foster, I can't appreciate uh, enough your time. Uh, and Oh, let me ask one last question yeah. we'd like to ask. What would be uh, your vision of the more beautiful and just world that your heart knows is possible? Share a vision of that with us. Well, it's a planet uh, where every individual has the opportunity to thrive and no one uh, is authorized to encroach on anyone else's person uh, or property. Uh, it's a planet of truly voluntary exchange uh, where people can feel happy in their pursuit of happiness, where they can feel secure that uh, that their community has their back um, and they can be productive um, through the unleashing of the of their natural creativity that would happen uh, as people know that their individual freedom is primary for the entire species on the planet. That it's not being co-opted by some arbitrary version of what few people, a few people claim is more fair than individual freedom. And where in the process of that, the, we master the experience of love of ourselves, of one another, and of our environment, uh, and then are welcomed into the cosmic community. <laughs> Beautiful, thank you. And I would, let me just, uh, yeah, if I had yeah. to boil that down to one, so my slogan has become these days after 30 years of research, Truth floats and love wins. Truth floats and love wins. I like that one. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Foster, for an um, amazing conversation that will, uh, I'm sure will be circulating for a long time. You're welcome. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for the privilege. Okay. Bye. Well, uh, to say goodbye, if you're watching on YouTube or listening on uh, our audio podcast, please subscribe, please like, and of course, please share with your friends and followers. If you would consider becoming a supporter so Steve and I can continue our work, you can do so by going to frontandcenter.us, uh, or you can search us on Rumble 
there you can become a supporter as well. Steve and I would be very appreciative of any support you can give from political battlefields to cooperative playing fields. It's a long journey to the more beautiful and just worlds our hearts know as possible. Let us go there together. Thank you. Thank you.